Good morning. It's great to see you all again. Uh, for those visiting, welcome. We're so thankful to be able to worship with you. Uh, my name is Joshua, and I'll be bringing you the word today. We're in a series called Empowered, and we're exploring the question, what does it mean to receive from Jesus as we follow him out in the world? Discipleship means that we're receiving the grace of our discipler and then living out that grace in life. That's empowerment. And we said that Matthew chapters 8 through 10 have a specific pattern to bring that out. Uh, Jesus does three healings and gives a lesson about discipleship. Three more healings, a lesson about discipleship. And finally, another three healings, a lesson about discipleship. And then he sends out his followers. See, it's a pattern where Jesus healing people and bringing power into their life is what equips them for a life of faith. Well, last week we looked at the first three healings in Matthew 8 and we saw what kind of Savior Jesus is for us. Today we're looking at the following lesson about discipleship. So Matthew 8, 18 through 22, let me read it for us, and then we'll get into it. Hear the word of God. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples came to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear God, thank you for your kindness to us this morning. Lord, as we think through discipleship today, remind us that we need you. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I remember watching a comedy video of an American couple eating out at another culture's cuisine. I think it was Vietnamese or something. And when they're at the restaurant, they announce out loud things like, I love Vietnamese food, and this is so authentic. But when the waiter comes to take their order, the man tells him, uh, I'll have the spring rolls, but instead of the pork, can you do chicken? And take out the rice paper and the veggies, I don't need those. And uh, I know you usually saute the chicken, but can you switch it up today and, and fry it? Thank you so much, I'm so excited. Uh, and when his food finally comes out, you see on his plate a handful of chicken nuggets. And he says, this looks amazing, exactly what I, what I wanted, and he takes a picture. Isn't it true that a lot of times our commitments to things can become meaningless if there's no cost or change in us? Uh, as much as Jesus, as our discipler, pours into us his healing and his grace, he also then calls us to real discipleship. And, and real discipleship is not on our terms. Following Jesus has a cost to us. It requires us to give up certain things for the sake of of him and his people. But in that, he promises not less life, but more life. 
So, so what is the cost of discipleship? Three points to guide us through the text. Number one, describes overcommitment. Number two, the disciples under commitment. And number three, the commitment of the son. First, describes overcommitment. The text begins with what seems like a minor detail in the story, right? Uh, when Jesus sees a crowd forming around him, he gives orders to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But actually, this detail frames what Jesus is about to teach his followers here. Because by physically moving to the other side and escaping the large crowd, he was, in a sense, filtering out those who were not serious about him and focusing on people who really wanted to be there. And so here in this section, Jesus' lesson is that following him is not a superficial matter. And we see that more in his interactions with two individuals. Um, first, there's the scribe. Uh, he comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus' response is strange. He says, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of, God, Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, in order to understand this response, we have to think about what a scribe is. Um, during that time, a scribe was a religious leader whose job was to master the Hebrew scriptures and then to write them down line by line on parchments to preserve God's word. So they pretty much memorized the whole Bible down to the grammar. And so on the surface, the scribe's willingness to follow Jesus is admirable. He's ready to learn from a rabbi. But Jesus knew that underneath this man's idea of discipleship was all about being religious and knowing theology, it wasn't about submitting to a relationship. So if Jesus were to answer this scribe on his terms, he would say something like, okay, uh, come to the temple once a week, we'll do Bible study. But instead Jesus says, if you're going to have a relationship with me, you're going to have to live like me. And I'm homeless. You're going to have to leave your religious status, the comfort of your home, your privilege, and walk with me in suffering. Uh, was the scribe ready to do that? Or was he overcommitted to the religion of Jesus and not the person? Family of God, how often do we mistake our Christianity for Christ? See, there's a way to do all the things that God requires of us without actually submitting inside. Coming to church, doing spiritual disciplines, attending CG, sending our kids to CEM. We can go through all the motions of a believer, but from a distance in our hearts. Um, maybe just enough so that we could say we're living a decent life, uh, keeping our guilt away and feeling good. Maybe it's just about controlling these things. But when Jesus mentions specifically his homelessness to the scribe, he's saying that following him actually mean instability and a lack of control, even as a believer. Letting go of our self-reliance. So what does that mean for us practically? It could mean uh, in confessing our sins and our weaknesses to each other um, and to God, it's beyond the surface level sins or insecurities and being really vulnerable about our needs and asking for help, being willing to talk about our brokenness with our egos aside, even if we don't look as put together. Um, before him and before others. 
Maybe it's in being willing to move out of our comfort zones and personalities to love somebody a little better. Uh, doing things we're not used to, like being present socially or being a listening ear to somebody we don't understand. Maybe it shows up in conflicts and learning how to recognize our faults and communicate our hurts humbly in order to make connection. These are all examples of denying ourselves and stepping into places of need. But he says that it's in those moments of weakness that we experience his strength. Sometimes it's not about how well you live the Christian life in front of God and people, but it's about admitting that you can't and making room for God and others to really care for you. And then you care for others. That's the gospel way. A movie that my friends quote a lot is Goodwill Hunting from 1997. I'm sure many of you have seen it. It's a story about a young man from Boston, played by Matt Damon. I think he's supposed to be in his early 20s. And he's this aggressive uh, street dude. But he has this incredible ability to absorb information. And then he can extrapolate new ideas from that information in any subject. So, so he's a genius. Uh, long story short, an MIT professor recognizes his talent and wants to work with him, but somehow this guy ends up getting arrested for beating somebody up, and so uh, the professor pulls him out of jail and brings him to a counselor uh, uh, played by Robin Williams. Now, initially, this counselor has a difficult time with him because he's arrogant and rude. He thinks he knows everything. Uh, but in one scene, he's able to humble this man by confronting him with a profound truth. He says to Matt Damon's character, if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Uh, life's work, political aspirations, the whole works, right? But I'll bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. Uh, you've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling and seen that. You're a tough kid. I'd ask you about war. You'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap. Watch him gasp his last breath looking to you for help. Uh, I'd ask you about love. You'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. See, I can't learn anything from you, uh, learning, uh, learn anything about you from a book either. If you want to talk about you, who you are, then I'm fascinated. I'm in. But you don't want to do that, do you? You're terrified of what you might say. And the young guy gets silent. There's a difference between information and insight. Insight is about growth and love and wisdom. But in order for us to get there, Jesus says we have to go beyond just the religious facade that we always put on when we come in here uh, and embrace our weakness with God and trusted people saying, I need help. This is my sin. This is my fear. This is my hurt. But when we do that, the spirit shows up in us and he meets us. Church, in what ways do you need to let go of your own version of Christianity? and depend honestly on Christ and his people. That was the scribe. Second, the undercommitment of the disciple. Verse 21, a disciple comes up to Jesus next, and he says, Lord, let me bury my father first. 
And Jesus responds, follow me, let the dead bury their own dead. Now, at first glance, this is kind of harsh. This guy's trying to be a good son. In, in East Asian culture, we call this filial piety, right? He wants to love his father by honoring his burial process. Uh, but Jesus says to leave it all behind. How can we understand this interaction? Well, we know that what Jesus is not saying is to neglect our family. In John 19, when he's dying on the cross, even Jesus makes sure uh, that his mom has a guardian. Um, so, so we know he takes family obligations seriously, but in this context, Jesus is using strong language to confront this disciple. Uh, he, he wants this man to know that even beyond our earthly relationships, there's a spiritual reality that's more urgent for our souls. Um, when he says, let the dead bury their own dead, he's saying there's a way to get so focused on the things of earth that you're spiritually dead. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Let them invest their time and energy on earth, but follow me for life. Um, of course, this doesn't make Jesus' words less harsh. Uh, it's still a little offensive. Um, but we have to remember, he, at this point in his ministry, he wants to open people's eyes. Uh, he wants to shift the paradigm in people's hearts, and sometimes he uses shocking language to do that. Family of God, Jesus is always pointing us to a kingdom perspective. He wants us to see that our destiny is with him and his people. But so often we narrow our focus down to temporary ambitions, uh, earthly success, comforts, pleasure, and things like that. Even if it's a good thing like family, sometimes we put all our hope in the success of our children or our relationships, and we end up becoming more anxious or easily disappointed. What's the ultimate thing giving you a sense of purpose today? Is it your intelligence? Be being smart and correct in front of people? Is that what makes you feel like you're worth something? Is it other people's approval? Of course, that's not a bad thing, but is that what has power over your mood and confidence? Whether or not people like you? Is it safety? Is it accomplishment? What do you fantasize about when your mind is wandering? What is your good life? Jesus wants to confront you with that question today, not because he wants to guilt you, but because you're made for so much more than whatever you're clinging to right now. Uh, he wants you to know that you belong in his kingdom. Uh, imagine you're at a restaurant that serves your favorite food. It's supposed to be some of the best in New York City. Uh, but for some reason, the manager asks you to be their food critic for that day, and he's going to publish your review in the national newspaper. So the whole time, you're trying to appreciate the quality of the food, but of course, you're not fully enjoying it because all eyes are on you, and you're thinking about what to write and how to phrase your review. The next time you go back, you go with your closest friends, and it's a totally different experience. Nobody bothers you. You don't have to worry about writing anything, and you can just focus on the food together without distractions. In the same way, even good things of this life, our pursuit for love and security and success and even politics, all these things can be deeply meaningful only in light of our relationship with God and his people and his kingdom perspectives. But if these earthly pursuits become our ultimate focus, 
if they become the sole basis of our identity, then we'll always feel unfulfilled and incomplete and pressured. Jesus wants to rearrange our lives, not as a handyman to fix a couple things, but as a renovator, breaking down our idols and rebuilding us into what we're meant to be with him at the center. I love that we have so many babies in our community here. Happy birthday to Amelia. She just celebrated her uh, first birthday. It's a gift, right? And it's always uh, inspiring to watch couples' lives transform once the child comes into the picture, Uh, getting rid of their plants, their furniture, their workout gear, to make room for this tiny human. I went to a friend's house one time. I said, man, this used to be your gym. He said, yeah, the baby sleeps here now. That's a beautiful thing. Jesus asks you, child of heaven, is he big enough in your life that you find yourself moving things out of the way for him and his people? Check yourself. What's defining you today? Go to Jesus and ask him to shape your life around eternal priorities, what he thinks about, and ask him what you need to loosen your grip on in your time and energy and he'll draw near to you. Which brings us to our last point, the commitment of the Son. Well, our text ends there, but something I skipped over is back in verse 20. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man for the first time. That phrase, Son of Man, comes from Daniel. It's an Old Testament prophecy about a Messiah who's supposed to come and bring a new kingdom. He's supposed to have dominion over creation. But in our text, Jesus says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so it's a paradox, right? The Son of Man is supposed to be this conquering king, but here he's homeless and he's suffering. And we begin to see in Matthew that the way in which the Son of Man is going to bring new hope for his people is not by huge armies or triumph or anything like that. No, he's going to do it by giving himself up. And later in chapter 20, he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Church, yes, discipleship is costly. Um, As we said, it requires embracing weakness in the church. And it requires breaking down idols before our king. There's no such thing as a casual follower of Jesus. But I don't want to just leave us there today. How do we find help to be able to live like that? And the answer is we look to the Son of Man. Jesus never asks you to do something that he hasn't already done for you. Even before you think about your commitment to him, he wants to show his commitment to you. He was so joyful for you that he rearranged his whole life, leaving heaven taking on human form, human pace, and human scars. Infinite God, limited to human fragility. And he went to the cross completely alone. But as he was dying, he prayed for you, unconditionally saying, Father, forgive them. He wanted to make sure on the cross that you have a lasting hope, love, and community in your life. Child of God, he's not asking you to commit because he wants you to meet a certain standard. No, it's because he wants so much more for you. He wants you to be finally seen 
and safe and free in his grace and for you to participate in his project of healing those around you. That's why he calls you. And in that journey, he will continue to commit to you even when you mess up, even when you're far away. He will always pursue you because you're that precious to him. See Jesus' tender heart for you and allow that to help you take a step towards him and others in real discipleship, one day at a time. Let me close with a verse uh, from one of my favorite hymns. I've quoted this before from Henry Light. Uh, This is what he writes. He says, Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Amen. Amen.